Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. First Samuel 7 verse 5, and Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water, poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the children of Israel Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb, a sucking lamb rather, and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines, and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. Amen. Tonight, for a little while, my subject matter this evening is this extensions of a family altar extensions of a family altar hallelujah will you help me pray right now God I pray Jesus right now God gather Lord every thought God bring it into the obedience Lord of your purpose and your will God I'm thankful Lord for the praise for the worship God of your people God, your spirit, God, that I witness with my spirit, God, in this place. I pray, oh God, if you can use this earthen vessel one more time today. God, if you can speak, Lord, some words, Lord, through these lips of clay. Lord, I pray, Lord, do it tonight. God, touch our minds and our hearts afresh. Lord, disperse some word, Lord God, for the benefiting of our souls. And I know, Lord Jesus, your people will praise you for it. And I undoubtedly, God, when I return to my seat this evening, will give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for it. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. The church say amen. Hallelujah. Shake one or two hands around you before you seated. Extensions of a family altar. First Samuel chapter number seven. By the order of Samuel, Israel gathers together at Mizpah, the Bible says. And what is interpreted by their enemies, the Philistines, as a gathering for war is in actuality a gathering for prayer with that just being said it serves to reason tonight that whenever God's people gather for prayer our enemies see us gathering for war we're nine five minutes in and we're already preaching here tonight therefore the Philistine lords 
seeing the gathering together of the people at Mizpah. The Philistine lords gather their forces together because they're interpreting this as war. They go out against Israel and with bated breath, Israel receives the news that the Philistines are gathering together against them. Fear strikes their hearts. The remnants, if you will, of defeat from these foes had yet to escape their memory from just recent days, not too far gone in their past. On two paralleled occasions in the recent past in the Scripture, Israel had suffered at the hands of the Philistines. For that matter, they had always been a faithful enemy and a faithful adversary throughout the vast history of the Israelites' lives. Some battles they had won and some battles they had lost. But it was a constant, endless war of rivals between the Israelites and the Philistines. We are told according to Scripture in the fourth chapter of 1 Samuel that the two great battles of Aphek was fought on this very same area and region and spot where the children of Israel are now located at Mizpah. It was in this location currently where they are at that they had met the Philistines before and they had suffered defeat. The Bible records for us in 1 Samuel 4 and verse 1 stating these words particularly, Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And whenever this day or this battle, this engagement firstly mentioned was over, finished, and done. Defeat number one. The Israelites were defeated by the Philistines. And about 4,000 men were subtracted from the armies of Israel. But not to be outdone. Not to be overtaken by their adversary. Not to be humbled, if you will, by their success. The children of Israel fetch the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle in Shiloh and they employ it in the army of the Lord and they go back to another battle but the misdeed if you will of Israel was this the ark of the covenant at that time to them was just like a good little trinket a good little luck charm that they would take in battle with them during their second attempt in trying to overtake the Philistines the Bible records Defeat number two, an increasing number now. Not just 4,000 of Israel has failed, but now the second attempt rendered 30,000 footmen that are lost in battle. And no doubt this circumstance, these battles, the carnage from the battle is massive. The ripples of these two defeats the ripples of these two losses are far-reaching because in this region, the Bible states that Hophni, the son of Eli, fell dead. That Phinehas, the son of Eli, was slain. The Bible tells us upon the news of the disgrace 
and the shame and the loss of the Ark of the Covenant because it was taken by the Philistines that the priest Eli falls backwards. He breaks his neck and he likewise dies all due to a defeat concerning this region. The Bible states Phineas' wife who is well endowed with child, she is giving birth to a boy and she cries out his name having hearing all the news and, and all of the havoc of the days of these defeats. She calls it Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed, which was indicative of their time. And so you can only imagine tonight as Israel is in the same region, Israel is in the same location, you can only imagine the worry that's passing through their minds. You can only imagine the fluttering of their heart and the fretting of their soul as they consider the preceding defeats that they've had at this exact region and exact location. You can only begin to imagine how maybe their hands became a little sweaty as they begin to recall the massive carnage and the losses in the ark of God that was away from them and had been taken from them. Oh, they're, they're experiencing all of those feelings, all of that woe, all of that feeling overwhelmed all over again. It's in the exact location. It's the exact same enemy that's coming against them again. What's going to happen? Are we going to be defeated again? Are we going to be overtaken again? We know the armies are gathering they gathered before and we went home defeated with a great loss. Is it all going to happen again? Yet today, they stand positionally different from where they stood then. Today, the Bible says that they have put away their strange gods. Today, they have gathered according to the scripture so that Samuel might pray for them. In verse 6, it tells us that they drew some water and they poured it out on the ground today. Might not mean much to you, but it did to them of their day. Because taking and drawing water and pouring it out upon the ground was basically saying this, God, we are committed to you. Because after pouring water on the ground, they had no advantage of trying to recollect the moisture, recollect the water and regather. When they poured it out on the ground, it was full commitment. It was dire desperation. So they're standing positionally today different than what they had before. The Bible says that in addition to that, they fasted. Amen. But with all of those things having been done, all of those things having been changed, there still is in the back of their mind the terrorizing memory of what has happened. The terrorizing memory of defeat. The smell of rotting flesh upon a battlefield that they could not overcome. An enemy, can someone say amen? We'll preach here before it's all said and done. And then we recall, look now, the reaction of the fear that's in their hearts in verse number 8. When they hear the gathering of the armies, they say unto Samuel, Seize not to cry unto the Lord our God 
for us. Samuel, you have called this gathering to this location, to this region where we've been defeated twice before. You've called this gathering to this place with the purpose you said that you were going to pray for us. Well, the enemy's all around. He's interpreted our gathering for prayer being a gathering for war. And so you said that you we were coming together for prayer. So cease not to pray for us right here. Someone say amen. Someone say somebody pray. In verse number nine, the response of Samuel then takes place. He takes a sucking lamb. He offers it. Thank you, honey. And he offers it as a burnt sacrifice unto the Lord holy. And the Bible says that Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel. And the Lord heard him. He's offering a lamb. He's offering a sacrifice. But at the same time, he's crying. At the same time, he's calling upon God. At the same time, he is praying unto the Lord And look what happens. The Bible says when Samuel prayed and Samuel sacrificed, God thundered a great thunder. When the prophet prayed, God thundered a great thunder on the Philistines and God smote them by the thunder and smote them, if you will, by a man's prayer. Someone say amen. Because see, whenever Samuel stepped to the altar to pray, this wasn't his first try at it. This wasn't somebody that has read Prayer for Dummies and passed and got his certificate and his credit hours and he was about ready just to try this thing called prayer out. But whenever Samuel stepped to that altar to pray, he had a heritage of prayer behind him. He had a prayer, he had a heritage of calling on God behind him. Not surprisingly, I know this this seems to be real close to Saul from last Sunday, but not surprisingly, Samuel means heard of God. Samuel means asked of God. Amen. Due due to the deep groanings of his mother, the deep petitions of Hannah, his mother, the desires of that mother to have a baby boy. He's the result of that. He's the result of a mama that knew how to pray knew how to petition God Elkanah that went up every year to the house of God to offer their sacrifice offer their prayer whenever he went up to that altar among all the children of Israel he had a rich heritage a prayer amen that was behind him in his life as he went to that altar he was literally the answer of his mother's prayer amen in so much at an early age in his life the Bible says that Samuel is given to the house of God or if I may impose he was given to the house of prayer at an early age in his life brother Fred when he was still yet a young man he's sitting over in his bunker there in the temple and he's hearing priests giving chants and giving adoration and speaking prayers in the name of Jesus he's been exposed to it from a very young age about how to pray amen the language of prayer when to pray praying always praying for everything praying anytime you feel like praying he was reared in the house of God the house of prayer But notice, 40 years, Philistines were an old enemy of the Israelites. 
for 40 years. They had domination of the Philistines. They had domination rather of the Israelites. The Philistines did. During the time of the judges, during the time whenever Samson was a great judge, they had domination. They had dominion. They could not be overthrown by the natural strength, if you will, of Samson. But here they are now listed in Scripture. Samson couldn't do it in his 40-year reign as a judge. Amen. With his natural strength. But now we have here in Scripture. But they are all but terminated and subdued by the prayers of a solitary man man by the name of Samuel because Samuel has a rich heritage of prayer. Samuel had been in the house of God, the house of prayer. Psalms 99 and 6, in speaking of Samuel, David remembers and recalls and says, Samuel, let's read it, Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. In other words, this is a man that was known for prayer. He was known for talking to God. He was known for speaking to God. It is no wonder then as he approaches the altar that when he prays God thunders and he answers he's a man of prayer and as a result the defeated the once twice defeated Israelites are now pursuing the enemy the enemy that had challenged them the enemy that had defeated them, they are now in pursuit of them all the way to a position called Bethkar. And this is just kind of a side note interjection this evening. But they chased their enemy all the way to the house of the Lamb. And I just want to denote tonight that the victory that came through Samuel and his prayer started with a sacrifice of a sucking lamb. The victory that was given to them started with a sacrifice of prayer with a sucking lamb and it ended at the house of the lamb. Now notice, on the field now, in that location, in that region, of their former defeat, they're erecting a monument by the name of Ebenezer, which means here too God has helped us. A monument saying that God has come through. Telling the people, and for us even today, that by prayer, someone say by prayer. By prayer, listen to me very clearly. By prayer, victory rises on the fields of their former defeats. Where twice they had been defeated. Where twice they had been overtaken. Through prayer. They grasp the victory. Where twice they suffered at the hands of their enemy. Now they are overtaking and defeating their enemy. Because of, someone say, prayer. Because prayer to them at this moment wasn't like the Ark of the Covenant. Prayer wasn't some trinket that they were going to pull out. Prayer wasn't some good luck charm that they were going to lean on. Prayer wasn't a little rabbit's foot they were going to rub between their fingers and hope everything works out just now. No, prayer for that man of God, that prophet Samuel was none of those things. Prayer was more than just a rich heritage he had. Prayer was a lifestyle that he lived. Amen. The Bible says, and this is very clearly, this is the postscript, if you will. This is the postscript of the scripture of 1 Samuel chapter number 7. 
and the postscript, if you will, of Samuel's life. It reads like this in verse 15 and 16. The Bible says, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal in Mizpah and judged Israel in all of those places. The postscript of everything that's been written is, by the way, this man Samuel was a judge in Israel all the days of his life. He ran a circuit from town to town. There's Bethel, there's Gilgal, and there is Mizpah. He went there and judged these different cities and these different people the whole day of his life. Amen. But it's through these words in the closing of the chapter of these verses that it's revealed to you and I the secret of the success that happened in that chapter. Amen. Because he offered the offerings, of course, and yes, he cried unto God and he prayed unto God as we see in Scripture. And the Bible says, yes, that was at one of the circuit towns. It was there at Mizpah that he did that. It was one of the towns and cities that he visited regularly that he exercised judgment at. But the Bible says as he went about in the circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, amen, that after, after he would complete his circuit, he would always go back home. After he completed his circuit, judging and doing what was needful at all these other towns, he'd always go back home. Because down here was there that was missed, but just a little south of that was his home by the name of Ramah. And whenever he finished his circuit, he would go back to Ramah. After he retuned, re re as he completed his deeds, I get the word out of my mouth. As he completed his deeds at every city and every town and did everything that needed to be done, he would always go back to Ramah. All these other places were just extensions of his office. All these other places were just extensions of his authority, extensions of his responsibility. But God brought victory through the prayer of Samuel at Mizpah, one of these extensions, one of these cities where God thundered with a great thunder. But the secret to the power of that prayer that happened there, I believe is mentioned in verse 17, where the Bible says his return or Samuel's return was to Ramah. For there was his house, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. After the circuit was complete, after he ministered at all the extensions, he went back to Ramah, he went back to his house. He went back to the altar he had built at home. Folks, besides offering prayer at the extension at Mizpah or Bethel or Gilgal, Samuel regularly visited an altar in his home. And what we see in Scripture may seem like a solitary prayer from a good old boy prophet at Mizpah, for the sake of the people, God answering and thundering, glory be to Jesus, prayer works. But prayer worked for Samuel because he has a rich heritage of prayer. Prayer worked for Samuel because he was a man of prayer. Prayer worked for Samuel because he was reared in the house of prayer. But more importantly, prayer worked for Samuel because he had a family altar of prayer and that was nothing but the answer of an extension of his family altar. 
We want to call it up. It's just because of that one prayer. I don't believe that. I believe it's because of his life of prayer that he brought to that altar at Mizpah when he bowed over and prayed that caused heaven to thunder and the Philistines to quake. It was an extension of a family altar. Victory. Where defeat once was. Not just due because of a heritage of prayer. But due to a lifestyle of prayer. Having a family altar. I want to challenge us. The church world over. Preach just anywhere. Challenge the church this. That if you find yourself keep on being defeated in a certain region. Make your family have an altar of prayer. And those other regions you go to will be an extension of what you've established back at home. And then when you pray at the extensions, heaven's going to thunder and your enemy and adversary is going to quake. And where you would have met defeat, you'll meet victory because it's nothing but an extension of our family altars. I've said this a long time ago, but it bears repeating concerning the scripture of Samuel here in chapters in, in verse 17 and that is this you will either live where you build your altar or you will build an altar where you live the Israelites cry was what Samuel sees not to cry unto God for us he calls this gathering to prayer sees not to cry unto God for us and yet the mindset of Samuel that we see in other places of Scripture, particularly for Samuel 12, 23, is this, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Yeah, the, the Philistines had suffered defeat before, but not to this degree. Not with this lasting impact. They had lost battles before, yes, but not with this lasting impact. You can read 1 Samuel 7 and you come to this understanding very quickly in the rest of the verses that the Philistines, the Bible says, came no more during Samuel's judgeship within the border of Israel. They came no more within the border of Israel. What is that, Brother McGee? That's the extension of a family altar. The Bible says that the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. What is that, pastor? That's the extension of a family altar. The Bible says the alienated cities which the Philistines had taken from the Israelites were restored to Israel from Ekron all the way to Gath. You've never seen that before in Scripture. What's that the result of? That's the result. It's an extension of a family altar. The Bible says even the Amorites that joined forces sometimes with the Canaanites and went against the Israelites, they done decided in their mind, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to side with Samuel. We're going to abstain from all of these other frailties and hostilities. That had never happened before. Why is it happening now? Because there's a man of prayer with a rich heritage that was born in the house of prayer, amen, that has a family altar, and it's nothing more but an extension of that. What do you think Samuel should expect if he approaches the altar of Mizpah and never had a family altar? What should he demand? What type of expectancy should Samuel have? 
going there with his smoking guns. Never prays at home, but he's going to an extension. He's going to pray, and God's going to move. No, not the case at all. He went there with confidence. Why? Because he knew whenever his circuit was always complete, he always had an altar at home. And it wasn't just his good luck charm. It wasn't his little rabbit foot that he was going to rub, and God's going to jump out of the box, and he's going to do something. No. It's that he had intimacy with God. He had a relationship with God. And based upon what he knew him from his family altar, he knew God could do somewhere else. Because I don't, I don't want to come in here. I don't want to come in here and be somewhat out of the position of Samuel and come in here to prayer sometimes and want God to perform whenever I've negated my family. Because hear me today. Your altar at church should just be an extension. Of your family altar. But we come sometimes in here to this altar. We get out our prayer. We rub it like a little genie. Pop out, God. You're going to work. You're going to move. And sometimes we come to church. We go home defeated. How in the world can that happen? Because the altar at church should just be an extension of the family altar at home. And if you neglect the family altar of home, don't expect thunder from the altar at church. I mean, history records for thousands of years that people have been making altars where they live. Thousands of years it's happened. Yes, ma'am. Turning those domestic places into sacred places. And again, maybe from this morning, for those that weren't in here, you know, a popular material of the good old altars was, was stone and hewn stone a lot of times. Joshua even said that the stone that he had reared, a monument that he had reared, a stone that he had reared in his life work, at the end of his life work, the Bible says that Joshua said that that stone heard all the words of the Lord. Listen, he said a stone had heard all the words of the Lord and without doubt had heard Joshua's own words. They erected a monument there at that place of once defeat but now victory, Ebenezer, a monument. If I could say it was a rock of that area, it was a rock of that region. If the rocks could speak, Ebenezer would tell of the former defeats, but would tell the success of the present battle being nothing more but a product of prayer. More importantly, a family altar of prayer. Amen. The Bible even tells us in New Testament Scripture, God said if he could enable the rocks to speak, Jesus spoke to those that were around. He said if these people will hold their peace, he said the rocks are going to cry out. Because Joshua said his life work was heard by a stone. And if God could enable them, they could do some talking about what took place and what would happen and what would be some of the stories that they would tell. What would be some of the stories that they would tell that God spoke to the people. But more importantly tonight, what would be some of the stories that they would tell that God's people spoke to him? Let's get personal tonight. What stories would the stones of your family altar tell about you? For Abraham, the father of the faithful, they would tell this, the stones of his altars. The Bible says concerning him that he was a man that pitched tents. That regards his family. 
he would dig wells that regards his work, his employment. But he also built altars, indicated his spirituality. And listen, as a result of Abraham's many, because he was a traveler and nomad, as a result of his many family altars, Scripture records that his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, did the same. They pitched tents. They dug wells. They built family altars. But family altars are there and they're notable, but they do not come without extensions. Family altars extend into churches. Family altars extend into neighborhoods. Family altars extend into nations. It was a story that Dr. Bitterwolf relates concerning a young little Japanese girl who was studying at an American college and had spent a Christmas vacation in the home of one of her classmates. And she had seen much else, a lot of America already, but the thing that she longed most of all to see was on the inside of a Christian home. And such a home this was that she went to to be at vacation at. And she had a delightful time while she was there. And whenever she was about to leave at the end of vacation time, the mother of that home said unto that Japanese foreign exchange student girl, how do you like the way we America folks live? Oh, she said, I love it. Your home is beautiful. But there is one thing I miss, said the girl, with a far away look in her eyes. It, had, it is this, it is this that makes your home seem a little different, a little strange, a little queer, if you will, to me. You know, I've been with you to church. I've seen you worship your God at your church there. But I've missed the God in your home. You know, in Japan, we have a God, a shelf in every home with the gods right there in the house. Do not Americans worship their God in their homes. I declare this evening, that before Christianity can ever infuse our country, it must first pervade our home. Before it ever reaches the extension of the reaches of the world, it must impact the family altar. <laughs> must be the God. That's in the home. Genesis chapter number 18. If you'll turn me there. I don't know if I've turned this thing off too quick. I've already been going 45 minutes. But just give me 15 more. Genesis 18 and verse number 17. The Bible states these words. And just let, just let me read just a few verses of scripture here. Talking about extensions. The family altars. The Bible says, and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham? Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
For I know him that he will command his children and his household after them. And they shall keep the way of the Lord and to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. The setting of scripture in which all of this is spoken is this, folks. Three angels have come to the household of Abraham and Sarah. They have come pronouncing the promise of their son to be born. But these three angels, one of them, which happens to be God in the form of an angel, we find out, has come to visit Abraham. Not only are they pronouncing the, the blessing and the seed of the child that's coming, but they're passing by Abraham's house before they're passing on to Sodom and Gomorrah for destruction. And as they are passing by and in that house, the Bible says in verse number 16 that those that arose, they rose from Abraham's house and they were looking for, towards Sodom. That's where they were headed. That's where they were. They were just visiting Abraham and now they're headed towards Sodom. Destruction, fire and brimstone is about ready to rain on Sodom. The scripture relays that only two of the three go to Sodom. You can read in Genesis 19.1, only two angels make it because one of them was God in the form of an angel. And he stayed and lingered behind with Abraham. And God is mulling over in his mind this very thing. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about ready to do? Because see, in Sodom is relatives of Abraham. In Sodom is Lot and his wife and their children. And God's saying, should I hide this from Abraham? But whenever he begins to consider the reality of Abraham, he says this, but Abraham, I know him. And I'm not about ready to share what's about ready to happen with anybody else, but I'm going to share it with Abraham because I know Abraham. Abraham has a relationship with me. Abraham has a family altar. Abraham has talked to me there. And I can't withhold this information from Abraham because Abraham has a family altar. Abraham's going to command his children. Abraham has Isaac to be proof that he has a family altar. He has Jacob to be proof that Jacob has a family altar. Am I going to hide this from Abraham? No, no, no. I know Abraham. He's going to command his children. And so the Bible says that here is the Lord. And he begins to relate to Abraham about ready what's going to take place over in Sodom. He says, I'm sending angels. We're going to destroy it. Fire and brimstone's going to fall. It's going to be over. Abraham's thinking, I got, I got some family over there. God knew that. Abraham knew that. And what does Abraham start to do? God didn't have to give him the time of day. Didn't know that to him. But he knew Abraham. Abraham had a family altar. I'm starting to tell you about the power of what you can have in an extension if you'll have a base. God, because of a man that has a family altar, says, I can't hide this from Abraham. He says, I'm going to destroy it. It's going to be so. And Abraham retorts back to God. God, if, I, if there be 50 righteous. If there be 50 righteous. 
Will you spare it for 50? God says, pre-adventure, if there's 50 righteous, I'll do it for 50. Abraham says, hey, I don't mean to be presumptuous or anything, but God, if there be four, we got Abraham being the Old Testament arcs in here, but he's going down instead of up. He says, God, he said, if there be 45 righteous, God's just not sharing this with anybody. God's not doing this bargaining, so to speak, with anybody, but he's doing it with somebody that has a family altar. He said, God, would you for 45 spare? He said, if I find 45 righteous, now Abraham, I said, he said, I'm not being too presumptuous here, God. He said, but God, if there be 40. He said, Abraham, if there's 40, I'll do it. Abraham, man, he's feeling pretty good. Man, God knows him. He commands his children. He's got a family altar. Instead of just skipping five, he says, I'll go for 10. How about 30? Went from 40 to 30. He was going five increments. Now he's going 10. How about 30? God, if you find 30 righteous, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I find 30, I'll do it. How about 20? Yeah, if there's 20, I'll do it. How about 10? Yeah, if there's 10, I'll do it. Stand with me. Listen very closely. God didn't have to do that. God wasn't obliged to do that or obligated rather to do that. The Mason come. But God knew Abraham. Abraham had a family altar. Listen to me very clearly. The sparing that we see in the book of Genesis and Sodom and Gomorrah of the angels that went to sin destruction but were the same angels that grabbed the hands of Lot and Lot's wife and children and led them literally out of the city of destruction, the sparing, listen, the sparing of Lot and his family was an extension of a family altar that Abraham had built. It was the extension of a family altar that Abraham had built. Well, he's saying, Brother McGee, I'm saying I, I, I know I can't rewrite Scripture or anything of that measure, but I believe very firmly and confidently tonight that had Abraham had not a family altar, God would not have known him the way God had known him. And there would never been no exchange of 50, 45, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And that Lot and his family, his wife and daughters, I believe undoubtedly, would have been consumed in the same fire and brimstone as the rest of the city. The only saving grace that they had was a family altar. They were the extension of a family altar. So how many times have you looked at defeat at the same place tonight? Let me implore you. I come there early to church to pray and that's good and I commend you for that. But let me implore you, build yourself a family altar. Might have, there might have been the, the Bethel and the Gilgal and the Mishpah. And that's great. That's great, Samuel, for all those things. And please do, have you an altar here? And have you a, a time when you can just close your ears to everything go around you at work and have those prayers rolling in your head? Do that. Have that. But don't have an extension without having you a good base at home. You need a family altar. Hallelujah. Can we bow our heads all across this place? Extensions. Extensions of a family altar. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.